this yes. is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And that's a tagline we have used a lot on the show this year in 2023. And we wish we did not have to be repeatedly reminded that the market incentivizes unethical and immoral behavior. While the establishment media ain't interested in doing so, we're more than willing to point out that capitalism allows for a lot of profit to be made by violating democratically agreed upon rules and engaging in behavior that is harmful to others, actions that can lead to others' suffering and even their deaths. Yes, capitalism and capitalists kill, and both are enriched by their deadliness. The topic came up in uh, January when we spoke with Christopher Ketchum on luxury emissions. We played that conversation with Chris earlier this week as the first interview of our annual year-end celebration, The Best of This Is Hell. The favorite interviews of, uh, you know, as chosen by listeners and staff members of This Is Hell. The best of 2023 continues today and throughout all of December, as well as the first week of January 2024. The discussion we are playing next is a talk we had only one week after we spoke with Christopher Ketchum on luxury emissions and why we need to end tourism now, as Chris says. Only one week later, we spoke with Julia Rock, a reporter at The Lever, thelever.com. Julia was on to discuss her article, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. New research shows that pharmaceutical companies have spent more on enriching shareholders than drug research and development over the past decade. Julia was on to explain that a big part of what makes pharmaceutical prices so much higher in the United States than the rest of the world is... Among other things, in the U.S., pharmaceutical companies are allowed to engage in stock buybacks, which drive shareholder demand for higher prices, higher prices that benefit top executives. According to our guest interview that you will be hearing today, in 2021, the average annual compensation of highest paid executives at these pharma companies was $61 million, 93% of which came from realized gains from stock-based pay. So why do we put up with these stock buybacks by the highest paid or for the highest paid executives, millionaires, which drive higher medication prices in the U.S.? Why don't we, like other countries, prohibit buybacks so we can do something about skyrocketing health care costs? That's because here in the U.S., we've apparently fallen for the very misleading claim or lie, if you prefer, by the industry and the media that they depend upon high prices to pay for all their innovations not to pay already wealthy executives. Yet the amount those executives make in stock buybacks is far greater than the amount of funding Big Pharma put into innovation. Stock buybacks cost more than innovation and by a lot. In fact, innovation is funded at the same level as industry lobbying. And in reality, most innovation in the field of pharmaceuticals is publicly funded anyway. So the lie that drug prices are high because Big Pharma innovates the medicines they manufacture and distribute is nothing more than cover so the rich can get richer while the rest of us choose to either have our bottom line suffer or our lives. I am your Bitter Blind Broke F2 Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing is Will Ippen. Will, how's your week going so far? So far so good. It's the last week of the semester. Oh, hot damn for you. Oh, I know. It's going to be a great time in a few days and all those 
beautiful research essays come in. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So after the term is over, don't you still have like another week of work to do? Yeah, pretty much. So, uh, yeah, it'll just be grading for about a straight week, but I don't have to be any place at a scheduled time other than this show. So, that'd so be great. And, and then uh, how much time do you get off between semesters? Uh, I think it's about five weeks. Oh, wow. That's yeah, fantastic, so start, Yeah, usually the spring term starts around MLK Day. And sitting in with Will Ippen today is Rebecca Ridenauer. Rebecca, welcome. And how is your week going so far? Oh, it's been all right. Going in for job interviews myself. What was the most recent? Not you don't have to tell us the place, but what was the type of job? The last one that you interviewed for? It was a server job. Oh, really? Yeah. Good luck with that. Thank you very much. <laughs> You'll get good tips. I'm, I swear, <laughs> I know it. Uh, also, uh, uh, Will, you missed the uh, chili cook-off. I last did. Weekend. I was feeling a little under the weather. Uh, how'd that go? Uh, well, uh, so I wasn't feeling all that great either, but they did have a chili cook-off down at the bar, and I really wanted to make it over here. Uh, this year, uh, there was a huge turnout, big crowd, 14 different chilies. It's a lot of chili. There was one that you served by first put, you first, first put tater tots in your cup, and then you cover that with the chili. That sounds amazing. And then you pour like this American cheese sauce like you get at the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. Over the, it. Like the fake nacho cheese yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I think the person huh. actually made it. There's a chili with... That and- sounds like a great hangover cure. It does. Yeah. Uh, there was a chili with andouille and some other ingredients I don't remember, but I do remember that it also had malort. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God Could you, you couldn't taste it. it. Yeah. You couldn't taste it. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was one with pork roast, another that claimed to be stupid hot. But was not. And, <laughs> and there was a quote. This is really disgusting. And so I want to apologize to everybody who's listening. And if you're a vegan and want to turn down your radio or computer or phone or whatever for the next few seconds, there was a quote unquote chili that had meatballs made of camel meat. And they were floating in a sauce made partly of pig's blood. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. That was the correct yeah. response. <laughs> Uh, which was not as bad as it sounds because it could not have been as bad as that sounds because that sounds god awful. So it was better than I thought it was. Where do you get pig's blood? But first of all, that is a good question. Or camel meat, for that matter. Well, camel meat's two doors down yeah, over here at Farm well, City. They have a sale right now at two fifty a pound. Actually, hey, all right. You can get camel milk there too. You can get, oh, get most of the parts of the camel over there. Um, uh, but uh, where do you get pig's blood? I have no idea. And the person who made this soup, I would not want, or chili, I would not want to ask them where they got pig's blood from. I would hate to know what the answer to that question is. It's just, I got a guy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It fell off a truck. <laughs> but, Wilmore, that's what I asked the guys across the street at a grocery store. Uh, for years and years, they had orange juice for like 50% the price that you could get it at Jewel or ever, anywhere else. And I said, how do you guys get, you know, Orange juice so cheap, and he goes, ah, sometimes things fall off a truck. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. But will more important than camel meatball pig's blood chili? <laughs> will please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, it's a good one. Um, this week's question from hell. Lots is, of answers. Yeah, uh, so many answers. Um, what special kind of hell should Kissinger suffer for all eternity? <laughs> what special kind of hell should Kissinger suffer for all eternity? That would be Henry Kissinger, in case you're yeah. thinking it's a different Kissinger. Yeah, I don't, don't want to mix up identities here. No, you don't. Uh, 
Thanks for the question, Pete. Yes. It's a good one. It is a really good one. Uh, we will share your question from Hell answers as posted at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, and at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, in just a few, well, after we play our interview from January of 2023 with Julia Rock. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us on X at thisishellradio. You can post it on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell or in our Discord community or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Will, what's Jeff talking about this week? Jeff decides to redeem the human race for the holidays. Oh, that's fine. That's nice that's of him. very nice. Thank you, Jeff. Get his uh, seal of approval. You can join the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group by finding Welcome to the Hellhole on Facebook and then just sending us a request for an invite. There are currently 789 members. The reason you should join is Facebook groups are not as throttled as their pages are, like the page for This Is Hell, as well as my own personal page. Being a member of the Welcome to the Hellhole group is a good way for you to uh, circumvent Facebook's throttling of God's favorite radio show, live stream, or podcast. In doing so, not only do you get the regular daily announcements about that day's show being posted or what's coming up on tomorrow, tomorrow on the show, as well as every week's question from hell, but you also get to see stories and opinion pieces that listeners are sharing and ideas for upcoming guests and topics and other listeners giving feedback on what they think about those articles and what they think about the guest suggestions. It's a great way to connect with other listeners because Facebook's algorithm is not blocking Welcome to the Hellhole as much as it is everywhere else we post. That is, not yet, as I can only assume the limitations social media is putting on unapproved political content will continue to worsen. And I am hearing from a lot of people at places like Truth Out and The Intercept that they, too, are increasingly having difficulty getting their message out on social media. If you do follow, for instance, Truth Out on Facebook, you'll notice that every one of their posts now is a sponsored post. They're paying so they can get their message out there on Facebook, which used to be free. I thought that the deal was we get Facebook for free and they get to use our personal information for free. That's what we were told was the unwritten uh, promise, the unsigned and unwritten promise from Facebook. But apparently uh, the real deal is you have to pay and we still get to take all of your information. More and more followers on the socials are telling us that they are no longer seeing our posts. So, yes, social, social media sucks, especially Twitter and Facebook. But listeners are still finding the Welcome to the Hellhole group page as a great way to stay on top of everything related to This Is Hell. By the way, longtime listener Tom G., who has sent us a lot of guest suggestions over the years, who often joins us during This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday evenings at the bar downstairs and is a regular attendee at our annual This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show, Tom emailed us at chuckatthisishell.com to tell us his favorite interviews and guests of 2023. Tom writes, Hi, Chuck. Uh, these two are among my very favorite episodes this year. Siddharth Kara, author of The Blood of the Congo, Powers Our Tech, and Dean Baker talking about how the media botched the coverage of the Silicon Valley bank run. Keep up the great work. Keep the faith in solidarity. Tom G. Thank you, Tom. The Siddharth uh, uh, Kara conversation was intense, and it took the New York Times a few months to 
then do their own reporting on cobalt mining in Congo, packaging uh, far less coverage as groundbreaking when there uh, than Siddhartha had already put on in a book an eyewitness account on the exact same topic. The New York Times is saying their reporting was groundbreaking, but Siddharth's book had come out months and months before, and we had a conversation on the topic far before the New York Times put it on the front page without an eyewitness account. As for the Dean Baker conversation, all the time of uh, at the I'm sorry at the time of the Silicon Valley uh, bank collapse, we were being told that the entire financial system could be on the verge of collapse, and it was not. In the midst of that hysteria, Dean assured us it was not. You too can tell us your favorite guests or interviews, as many as you like. And if we play your suggested conversation on the show, we will personally thank you on air for making your suggestion. Again, contact us via our Facebook page or welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page, our Discord community on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, and at our Patreon page if you are a subscriber to completely listener-supported This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Big Pharma is ripping us off because the media and us keep falling for their lies. Will shares more of your answers to the question from hell. We will have this week in rotten history, and Will will tell us who is our next guest on tomorrow's edition of the best of 2023. Live from the United States, where the press has the freedom to be propaganda, this is hell. And a piece of the propaganda that always seems to put, they always seem to push, is that pharmaceutical companies actually invent medicines, which they do not. Here is, according to SoundCloud, the second most listened to interview of 2023. Is hell. Big Pharma insists they need sky-high drug prices in order to afford all of their amazing innovations, like the COVID-19 vaccine. But what if most of those profits were not going into research and development? We're not going into innovation, but we're going elsewhere. What if instead of paying for R&D, a good portion of which was being paid for with public money anyway, what if those profits were going more so to stock buybacks, benefiting shareholders and executives, and those profits were funding congressional lobbying at only slightly less of a rate than they were funding innovation? Here to answer all of those what-ifs and a lot more reporter at The Lever, thelever.com. Julia Rock joins us to discuss her article, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. Julia is a public records requester and researcher. Her most recent writing is a story headline, Corporations Are Pushing the Supreme Court to Crush Unions. You can follow Julia on Twitter, at Julia Rock, but replace the I with the number one. And you can send her tips at jrock at levernews.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Julia. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being on the show because this is, uh, there's aspects of the story that we have discussed before, but we have not discussed it in this exact uh, in-depth way in the past because it's usually just about how the public pays for innovation, and that's pretty much the end of the story. But your story does a lot more than just that. You report pharmaceutical giants rang in the new year by quietly announcing price hikes in the United States on research um, uh, for more than uh, 350 drugs, and they continue to insist these price hikes are necessary for innovation. But new research shows that the business model of America's largest pharmaceutical companies involves far more spending on enriching shareholders and executives than on research and development. So does the pharmaceutical industry spend more money on enriching themselves than they spend on actually developing new drugs? And is that any different than any other 
player in capitalism? Is that unique to capitalism? Uh, do the, do companies usually spend more money on making money than on new or improved products? Well, the, these are a lot of big questions, but but to start with pharma, uh, yeah, I was looking at a study which found that the industry, I think that you know the 14 biggest companies in the industry spent far more on returning money to investors, shareholders, um, than they did on on research and development, and 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 you know part of that, as you noted in in the introduction is that the the executives who are sort of making decisions about how much money to return to investors um rather than invest in in research and manufacturing are are themselves um you know enriched by by stock buybacks and dividends so it, uh, between the the period that the study looked at uh 2012 and 2021 um far more money uh 747 billion dollars was spent on buybacks and dividends than on research and development so is that unique in capitalism to have corporations like uh, here we have in big pharma not reinvesting in their own company only investing in profits is that unique because if if that is not unique if that is something that's if that's something that's happening across economic sectors then our future doesn't look great for innovation yeah i mean this is something that is absolutely happening in other sectors and you know has been a trend over the past few decades whereby companies you know aren't aren't investing most of their money um in in making things but but investing it you know back in in their shareholders i i would say what sort of stands out about the pharmaceutical industry and and increasingly is is sort of coming up in other industries is that Pharma companies have long said, you know, we need to cut people off from access to life-saving drugs via high prices because it's funding research and development. And and so these numbers are just far more striking in an industry where, where, you know, the companies have justified high prices that, again, are leaving people, you know, without access in some cases to life-saving drugs um you know they've they've justified them by saying you know they they will fund more drugs and that's why these numbers are so striking and it just makes me think that in the short term sure this will lead to a whole bunch of profits but in the long term it would seem unsustainable for providing the services that these sectors would be providing in pharmaceuticals it would suggest that you know in the short term yes people are getting rich off of this yes shareholders are making money off of this but in the long term we aren't going to have a sustainable uh, healthy public health system a system that can actually uh, protect us from a potential new variant or a potential new pandemic. So what do you think this says about the future that we have looking forward to us and when we aren't reinvesting back in our own industries that we depend upon for the goods and services that we use in our everyday lives? I mean, yeah, it, uh, as we've sort of seen over the the past few years with with the supply chain crisis, um, you know, not not investing in infrastructure, whether it's you know um, the shipping industry or pharmaceuticals, has has massive consequences um, down the road. You you had also made the point, you know, that the government is already uh, sort of massively investing in new drugs. We obviously saw this with. The COVID vaccines, um, and 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 so there is sort of an extent to which you know public public sector investment can 
sort of solve a lot of these problems of of sort of directing money towards drugs that are necessary and that are that are going to save lives. But sort of if that's the case, if these drugs are going to be sort of massively subsidized by the government, then it sort of raises questions about why these executives and investors are still being allowed to, you know, enrich themselves with with the profits from these drugs. And as you pointed out earlier, and you write in your article between 20. 2012 and 2021, the 14 largest publicly traded pharmaceutical companies spent $747 billion on stock buybacks and dividends, substantially more than the $660 billion they spent on research and development, according to a new study by economist William Lozanik, professor emeritus of economics at University of Massachusetts, and Ernest Tolum, a researcher at Brown University. These numbers, again, begin in 20, uh, 2012. On March 23, 2010, a couple of years earlier, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, went into place. Do we have any idea of Obamacare's impact on the way in which pharmaceutical companies spend more on shareholder buybacks than they do on innovation? I mean that that that's an interesting question and 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 wasn't something that this study looked at although um you know I will say again sort of the, this trend of of companies you know not 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 reinvesting in research and manufacturing isn't limited to pharma and you know one thing that really stands out in this study is that um th- there was sort of a trend at least over the the first few years that that the study looked at where basically the business model of big pharmaceutical companies wasn't to do their own you know, research and development, but was to find smaller firms that had um, you know, come up with new innovative drugs, buy them, um, you know, get every dollar they could out of the patents they had, and then use the profits to, to enrich shareholders and executives. So I think it was already a trend within the industry, you know, when Obamacare passed that, that bigger firms were sort of uh, buying up smaller firms, consolidating and using their um, patents to juice their own profits. But of course, you know, there, there's been a, a legislative development in the past a uh, couple of years in which the Democrats have finally passed a measure to allow Medicare to negotiate um, drug prices, which could and 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 should um, um, sort of Im- impact some of these trends. Although the 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 measure that de- Democrats passed was um, you know pretty pretty watered down after a, a lot of pharmaceutical industry lobbying. And we'll get to that negotiating with Medicare in a moment. I just find it very ironic that here you have these huge pharmaceutical firms and they're telling people that we need to raise drug prices in order for us to make innovations. And then smaller pharmaceutical firms are actually coming up with innovations and they just buy those firms up. Obviously, they don't need the amount of resources uh, that the big pharmaceuticals are claiming that they need or else these smaller firms wouldn't be able to come up with these innovations. They're just the smaller firms are, you know, prioritizing innovation. I just find that very ironic. You, you write of pharmaceutical companies spending more on stock buybacks than on actual research. That hasn't stopped drug companies and their lobbying groups from using the cost of innovation as a key argument in their campaign to keep Medicare from being able to negotiate lower drug prices. The pharmaceutical company has spent at least $645 million on federal lobbying over the past two years. So they've spent almost as much on lobbying as they have on innovation, it seems like, uh, to get the profits their shareholders want instead of uh, raising prices. They could have stopped spending so much on lobbying. Or is that the only way they get those profits from stock buybacks? Is that through lobbying? Is, is the money that they put towards lobbying 
and the money they put towards stock buybacks, are they dependent upon one another? Uh, th- 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 this is a good question. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what um, the relationship there would be in terms of lobbying on on drug price negotiation. Um, I mean, I guess the 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 point there would be that you know the pharmaceutical industry does not want Medicare to be able to negotiate uh, lower drug prices because that will you know sort of decrease the the profits of these firms and and sort of therefore um, you know the amount of money they can return to their their executives and investors. I mean the the Part of the government where, you know, buybacks could be restricted would be at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which legalized, you know, stock buybacks back in 1982. And they could basically say, you know, enough is enough with firms uh, sort of returning all of their money to shareholders rather than, um, you know, investing them in, in, you know, what the firms are actually supposed to do. We're going to crack down on stock buybacks. Uh, but the industry's lobbying has has mostly been focused on things like uh, drug price negotiations. As you just mentioned, stock buybacks, as you write, uh, stock buybacks whereby companies repurchase shares of their own stocks, reducing the number of shares available and increasing the value of remaining shares were made legal by the Securities and Exchange Commission in 1982 and have been criticized by President Joe Biden and top congressional Democrats. So do stock buybacks do anything but raise stock value? Do they raise the value of the stock without adding any real value to the product the stock represents? Yeah, I mean the the other way you'll sort of hear hear them referred to is just companies manipulating the prices of their own stock, which is which is basically what it is. There's not any um and any sort of like real uh, explanation for what's happening besides the the one you gave. Like, there's no sort of yeah justification uh, that that is a little bit uh, more innocuous. <laughs> so why were stock uh, buybacks not legal? until 1982 what was the government concerned about when it came to stock buybacks well so so uh the the reagan years at at the sec were sort of a huge um shift in the way that the government regulated public companies because reagan was very uh sort of into the idea that 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 um was becoming big at the time which is that you know shareholders uh the responsibility of companies is is to their shareholders um and so get, you know given the explanation you you just gave of stock buybacks i think it's sort of clear why um you know opening uh the floodgates for for buybacks at the sec would sort of play into this idea that that the company's responsibility is is to its investors to its shareholders so it doesn't have any real responsibility to the public or the impact it might have on the public. Do stock buybacks without improving the product they represent? Do they raise the price for consumers and raise the pro- profits for shareholders? Because within that framing, stock buybacks sound like nothing but a redistribution of wealth upward via the market without any product development. I mean, that's that's certainly uh, one 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 argument against buybacks. I mean, in 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 the case of of pharma here, um, it is clearly the case, sort of that that 
companies investing more in new drugs and in, in research and developments would be good for um, consumers and 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 the public and that you know it, it enriching investors um, with profits isn't you know helping anybody but but the investors so is there any talk of going back to nine pre-1982 times and making stock buybacks illegal again so there has been some discussion in Congress about uh, limit, limiting um, uh, stock buybacks, um, you know, legislatively. There was also, of course, in the Inflation Reduction Act, a uh, 1% tax on stock buybacks, um, uh, a, a new 1% excise on on stock buybacks, although sort of the argument about that is like, well, if you tax buybacks a little bit more, you know, just just 1%, um, then then companies will will sort of just just return more to investors through dividends, like you're not really going to raise very much revenue. And it's it's not enough to sort of change the behavior of companies. So so that probably wasn't um, the best solution. But yes, there have been uh, efforts legislative efforts in Congress to, you know, restrict buybacks or require more disclosure. Um, this is something that Schumer has has talked about, that Bernie Sanders has talked about. So it's definitely something, uh, you know, that that top Democrats are critical of, but but nothing um, has really, you know, happened on that front in, in this Congress. So if there were no stock buybacks, if we went back to the pre-1982 days, how do you think the economy and our society may look different? Do stock buybacks, say, play a role in you know, other ancillary issues that we have, like growing inequality? I mean, I'm 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 no economist, but it's sort of impossible to imagine that it it it, it wouldn't be a really drastic impact. I do think you know stock buybacks again are sort of part of this this uh, bigger legal infrastructure in which you know corporations are sort of allowed to um, make make their focus uh, uh, you know returning money to to shareholders and not not. Uh, reinvesting in the public, but yeah, I mean, obviously, banning stock buybacks would would um, be transformative. And you know, one thing that that this economist uh, William Lazonic, who who has long sort of uh, been a critic of buybacks, talks about is that he thinks you know if you if you massively restricted stock buybacks, we would you know immediately see the impacts um, in in the stock prices of these these public companies, which have been you know basically manipulated uh, through them you know, buying up shares of, of their own um, company. So in your opinion, is there something uniquely wrong about pharmaceutical companies doing the same thing when it comes to stock buybacks that other industry, other uh, members of the economic sector uh, do? When it comes to pharmaceuticals, how bad are stock buybacks for our health? How bad are there is profit seeking for public health? I mean, I think the takeaway from from this study is perhaps more that, you know, when pharma, which is the the pharmaceutical industry lobbying group, one of the most powerful in Washington says, you know, again and again, if if Medicare can negotiate drug prices, if you cut drug prices, we are going to stop making like really important life saving drugs as that claim, I think, is already um been been sort of scrutinized that like nobody should be listening to that. I mean, they have like 
this research shows, I think, that there's sort of no reason to take that claim from pharma um, at face value or even to sort of look look for any truth in it, because the companies have just not been acting in a way that suggests that, you know, they need these really high drug prices to do research and development. And, but also the pharmaceutical companies are pointing out that, look, we had this great innovation with COVID-19 vaccines. So if you take away our fund, if you don't allow us to raise prices, who knows? We might not be able to have some sort of vaccine for the next variant or the next pandemic. Do stock buybacks make the public any more or less vulnerable during times of crisis, what do stock buybacks mean for a world that is facing increasing climate change, zoonotic pandemics linked to deforestation, industrial agriculture and globalization, none of which is going away soon? What do stock buybacks uh, mean for our vulnerability when it comes to pandemics and climate crises? I think they mean, you know, that the pharmaceutical industry as it exists right now is not going to save us. <laughs> That's a very, a very concise way of saying it. So <laughs> our, our uh, price increases are following the, following the beginning of a crisis is the definition of price gouging. Are stock buybacks a form of price gouging, a way to have an exorbitant price, an unreasonable price that is not guided by good sense, which again is the definition of exorbitant. Do you think that this is a form of price gouging, whether it's in the pharmaceutical industry or any industry? I mean, I'm I'm not sure I would describe it as price gouging um, so much as an explanation of what, you know, our high prices are subsidizing. Um, and, you know, in this case, I think what it shows is that when you pay high prices for drugs or when you can't afford a drug because it's too expensive, uh, you know, some already very rich person is getting richer from that. Uh, and and so in that way, it's maybe um, a form of price gouging, or at least that's that's sort of the relationship this, this has to prices. So are prices increasing in the pharma, pharmaceutical sector far faster than they are in other sectors? And as the pandemic of COVID continues and AIDS still kills between half a million and 900,000 people worldwide every year, with innovations being made in drugs for both diseases, shouldn't? drug companies be experiencing record high profits via price hikes as demand skyrockets? I mean, what's wrong with drug companies raking in profits when they are called on during times of crises? I mean, that that's that's sort of a, a political question. I think the, the problem with any industry uh, raking in a lot of profits it's just that there's already sort of massive wealth inequality. And this is, as you pointed out earlier, basically, you know, another upward transfer of wealth. But yeah, if the question is, you know, should the pharmaceutical industry be constituted by companies that, you know, create something that is good for the public, like affordable, you know, life-saving treatments and drugs, then I think as we we know, that's not really what's, what's happening right now. And uh, profits and you know, money being returned to shareholders is a huge part of that story. We are speaking with Julia Rock, a reporter at The Lever, thelever.com, who joins us to discuss her article, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. You can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Rock. Just replace the I with the number one. And you can send her tips at jrock at levernews.com. 
come. You write that Democrats have campaigned on allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies as health programs and most other high-income countries do since at least 2006. So other high-income countries, they do the exact same thing that we, you know, that many people want Medicare to be able to do here in the United States, and that would lower the prices here in the U.S. Is opposition to Medicare negotiating with pharmaceutical companies, is that in any way a partisan issue? And has it always been? Is one of the reasons that this was in place, that this did have at one time bipartisan support to not allow Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies? So in in the past Congress, uh, Medicare negotiating drug prices basically was a partisan issue. You know, the Democrats, most Democrats were supporting it. Of course, you know, it was a couple of Senate Democrats who helped the pharmaceutical industry water down um, their proposed measure. But yes, in in, in this Congress, it was, uh, you know, basically or, or in the in the previous Congress, uh, it was it, it was basically a partisan issue. So you also mentioned that the U.S. is an outlier on this issue when it comes to negotiating drug prices with a national health care agency. And it's why drug companies have, according to a report by House Democrats, quote, targeted the United States for price increases for many years while maintaining or cutting prices in the rest of the world. So how dependent is the pharmaceutical industry overall on high prices in the United States? What happens to the global pharmaceutical industry if Medicare starts negotiating lower prices? Would that have be detrimental in any way to the innovation and production of new pharmaceutical drugs globally? I mean, yeah, it's certainly an interesting question. Like if, you know, Americans are paying higher drug prices so that, you know, drugs can be cheaper in other countries, is that such a bad thing? Although I think, you know, as we've been talking about, there's not really great evidence that sky high drug prices in the US are, you know, funding really good, um, you know, research and and development from drug companies sort of instead that money is is uh, the 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 profits that that drug companies are taking in is is being used to sort of enrich the people invested in the companies. So I would I would find that to be a very um, dubious claim from the industry. So is the bigger problem uh, than the inability of Medicare to negotiate, as you were talking about earlier, how these huge pharmaceutical companies will buy up smaller firms, is the lack of competition within pharmaceuticals, is that also driving up the price when it comes to uh, drugs? Because it seems like there are, from reading your article, there are many, many factors that are all about profit seeking that seem to be driving up the price of drugs here in the United States. Yes, there are there are a lot of different factors um, sort of making making this industry the way it is. Well, and, 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 you know, there's the lack of competition that you point out from consolidation within the industry. But of course, this is also an industry with basically a government granted monopoly in the form of patents. Um, and so one of the reasons yet yeah, is so important for Medicare to be able to negotiate drug prices uh, is that prices are not sort of being um, driven down w- w- with a lot of drugs by sort of competition as a- economists would 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 like us to think um would sort of bring us to to the correct prices um and and so instead uh, th- these companies are are allowed to use basically their natural monopolies with um, um, patents uh, to just charge ob- obscene 
prices for drugs. And and so that is part of the reason it's it's important for Medicare to be able to negotiate. Of course, it's also just a common sense thing. Like if, you know, Medicare is paying companies for drugs, it's sort of crazy that they would just have to take the price that the companies are offering. That's really interesting, your point about how uh, we need to, it's important for Medicare to be able to negotiate because of the increasing power and consolidation of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, You uh, then write of the measure to lower drug prices through negotiations with Medicare. The pharmaceutical industry and its lobbying groups responded with a full force pressure campaign against the legislation. And you quote, the president and CEO of Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Washington's top drug lobby, saying, if passed, the measure measure will upend the same innovative ecosystem that brought us life-saving vaccines and therapies to combat COVID-19. If Medicare was negotiating drug prices at the time in January of 2020, how would have that affected the ability for a vaccine to be developed? Is there any kind of evidence that would suggest that if Medicare was not a, was able to negotiate drug prices, we would not have gotten the COVID-19 vaccine as quickly as we did? No, there's, yeah, maybe a rhetorical question, but no, of, of course, there's no evidence to suggest that. You know, what's funny is that the government did um, negotiate the price of those vaccines, as well as, as you pointed out, uh, sort of spend years investing in in research that that uh, laid the groundwork for these vaccines to be able to develop in the first place. So you also uh, quote the president and CEO of Washington's top drug lobby saying, and I'm glad that you do, because it gives the perspective of the industry side, uh, saying that under the guise of negotiation, it gives the government the power to dictate how much a medicine is worth and leaves many patients facing a future with less access to medicines and fewer new treatments. Would the government, would Medicare have complete control over what prices would be for pharmaceuticals as is implied in the term dictate? Is that the way it works in other countries where their national healthcare systems negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies? Do they dictate the prices with pharmaceutical companies? Uh, no, I don't think that um, negotiation of prices, you know, out, outside of how the pharmaceutical industry sees it or, or claims it works, could be called, um, you know, dictating prices. Uh, in in the case of you know the most recent legislation passed in the U.S., the drug price negotiations don't actually begin until. 2026, and it's it's up to the federal government um, to sort of come up with with uh, rulemaking to figure out what the structure of, of of those negotiations will be. But you also point out that last summer, after a year and a half of pharmaceutical industry lobbying and campaign spending, Democrats passed a massively watered down measure that will only let Medicare negotiate prices on a handful of older drugs that no longer have patent exclusivity. Had those drug prices already dropped due to that lack of patent exclusivity, did that legislation only lower the price or allow for negotiation on uh, prices of already cheap or depressed prices drugs? I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think the aim is that the the government will be able to choose some uh, of of the more expensive drugs, which which constitutes sort of a, a a larger portion of spending on drugs and negotiate those. But yes, it does exclude um, newer drugs that have, you know, just 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 come onto the market from negotiations. 
All I can imagine is, because I heard it so much in the run-up to the 2022 midterm elections, Republicans and Democratic Democrats alike saying, I helped reduce prices on Medicare drugs. And all I can think of is, it was this really watered-down bill that isn't really in effect in certain ways. You also point out that Republicans now in charge of the House of Representatives have their sights set on repealing the measure before price negotiations start in 2026, as you were just mentioning. Meanwhile, Biden could use his existing regulatory authority to lower drug prices before then, but has so far declined to do so. So can any president lower drug prices whenever they want through the existing regulatory authority of the president's office? Because that would seem like a no brainer. Like I would do that immediately upon entering office, whether I was a Republican or Democrat, because you're going to get a lot of support, especially from old people, old people who freaking vote. So why wouldn't just any president drop the prices of skyrocketing uh, drugs, skyrocketing drug prices when they have the existing regulatory authority of the president's office to lower those prices? Well, so so for one, uh, as we've been talking about, the the pharma industry lobby is quite quite powerful. But yeah, the the one of the authorities uh, we're referring to in this piece is is sort of the authority of the president to use margin rights um, to manufacture drugs, and 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 basically what that entails um, is the the government deciding that um uh, a patented product you know is not a patented drug is is uh not being um you know adequately produced and and sort of stepping in and saying like you are abusing this patent and and so we are going to um, manufacture this drug and this is something that Biden has been under pressure to do uh from lawmakers like Elizabeth Warren um but but just so far uh hasn't done just a few more questions for you. You write most pharmaceutical research doesn't introduce novel therapies, but instead modifies existing drugs to expand their purview to new patents, further bolstering drug company profits. So producing new drugs is not what the pharmaceutical industry does. How ill-equipped is the pharmaceutical business model, if you will, in creating new drugs when they are needed, like they were with COVID. After all, we are told it was a miracle that in less than a year, we had a COVID vaccine, which was first released on December 11th of 2020, around a year after the first reports of what would later be known as COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. Was it a miracle for an industry that normally is not geared to, nor does it produce many new drugs, or is the COVID-19 vaccine just yet another existing drug simply remodified by the industry. The COVID vaccine is certainly a, a, a novel uh, therapy. Uh, what 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 that part of the story uh, was just referring to is the fact that you know when, when the industry says, oh, you know, fewer drugs are going to come come onto the market. Look at this study uh, that says, you know, two fewer drugs will come onto the market over the next ten years if 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 Medicare negotiates drug prices, which is what what one study said. You know, it's not like every new drug that comes onto the market is a COVID uh, vaccine level innovation. Oftentimes it is, you know, as you said, just just a slight modification of some some existing therapy, which isn't, uh, you know, producing some massive good good for the public, um, but is sort of giving giving the drug company another patent that they can uh, juice. Do you believe that here in the United States, drug prices will just keep going up in a way that far outpaces drug prices in other countries? 
as long as Medicare does not have the ability to negotiate drug prices as national health agencies are allowed to do in other nations around the world? Will we just keep seeing drug prices going up until Medicare can negotiate with pharmaceutical companies? Well, well, so I think it it remains to be seen, you know, what the impact of the the recently passed measure allowing Medicare to negotiate the price of some drugs will be. Um, but yes, I think you know it's it's certainly an industry where where without sort of any any restrictions on on you know how how their money is spent and and how prices are set seems to be willing to just increase and increase and increase uh, prices. Why do you think we tolerate such high prices here in the United States as uh, consumers of pharmaceutical drugs? Why do we put up with it when it seems like in other countries that we don't? Is there a sense here in the United States that there's nothing you can do about it, that it's completely out of your control to stop the rising prices of uh, pharmaceuticals? And is there anything we can do about it as consumers? Yeah, I mean, I think... uh... You know why do we put up with it? I uh, I I don't know if uh, you know the public is sort of putting putting up with it uh, by by choice, but you know as has been the story um, in over the past couple of decades, you know the Democrats have campaigned on on giving Medicare this power, and people have elected them on that promise, and then you know under basically massive attack from the pharmaceutical industry, which I think I I just can't overstate sort of how how powerful and well funded and aggressive their lobbying operations are. You know it it doesn't get done. Um, so you know it's remarkable that at least some some version of Medicare drug price negotiation was accomplished last year, but but there's still a lot to be done in in the way of implementation and sort of making sure the Republicans don't repeal the measure before it even goes into effect. How much do you fear that politicians will say, or that the public will have this idea that the issue's already been addressed, that there's nothing else that we can do? And look what happened with McCain-Feingold. Everybody thought that that was going to be real campaign reform. And after that campaign reform was released, and it didn't really turn into any kind of campaign election financing reform, uh, we never went back to that issue. Do you? How much do you fear that we're not going to go back to the issue of Medicare being able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies because people will think of it as already being addressed. I mean, I don't I don't think it's the type of issue, you know, where where uh people will sort of lose lose interest in it or or believe it's been addressed if it hasn't because, you know, of course, uh you know, people are are the ones who who have to pay these prices for drugs and 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 sort of notice it um, you know, in in their pocketbooks or notice when they can't notice uh can't afford it or 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 you know sort of are struggling to cover high costs for family members. So I don't really think it's the type of issue that can just sort of fall to the wayside. Um, but you know, how much people can can organize uh and and sort of accomplish uh greater reforms is sort of a separate question. You know, one of the things that really bugged me, I'm sorry, I still have one last question for you, but one of the things that, uh, one, one more after this, one of the things that really bugged me about the whole Medicare for all campaign was that I, I know from personal experience that Medicare doesn't pay for saying you getting a tooth filled and it doesn't pay for x-rays and it doesn't pay for CT scans. It doesn't pay for a lot of things. So in the Medicare for all plan, all of those things were going to be addressed once we have Medicare for all. 
But in the meantime, the people who are, you know, within the groups that desperately need some some sort of medical coverage, they never got the reforms that they needed for, say, taking care of cavities or taking care of x-rays and CT scans. Why do you think a Medicare for all idea was in, in a great idea? Don't get me wrong, but why do you think that it still was like we'll 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 fix Medicare, but we'll only fix Medicare if it's for everybody. If it's just for the marginalized, we're not going to fix Medicare. Why do you think that was the case? Because that really bugged me. Yeah, sorry, you're 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 saying there, there's sort of no inter intermediate intermediate uh, proposal to reform Medicare exactly on the way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I, I think I'd agree with you that that uh, doesn't seem right, um, and I, I don't know enough about sort of the the choices that that uh, Medicare for all advocates have made uh, to to sort of comment on why that happened. Okay, one last question for you. It's just something that popped into my head. Cause we've, we've been talking about Medicare. We've been ta- speaking with Julia Rock, who is a reporter at the Lever. Check out thelever.com. She joined us to discuss her article: How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive profits. Her most recent writing is a story headline, Corporations Are Pushing the Supreme Court to Crush Unions. You can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Rock. Replace the I with the number one. And you can send her tips at jrock at levernews.com. One last question for you, Julia. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, it's called the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. If corporations <laughs> are inflating stock values to enrich themselves while raising prices on their products, and corporations are working, as you point out in your most recent writing, with the Supreme Court to crush unions, thus eliminating a way in which workers can get improved pay and benefits, why are there any fans of corporations in the United States? Why are their executives lionized when they profit from the suffering and misery of others and they do it openly? Why do you think corporations still have an incredible amount of support and following here in the United States, despite them trying to do everything they can to raise prices and lower wages on the working public? I mean, my response to that would be that their their approval ratings are falling and public support for unions is is rising. Um, so so maybe the the sort of cop out answer is that might not be the case for long. Uh, but but you know, in 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 the case of the pharmaceutical industry, the these are the companies that that at the end of the day have have provided us um, with with life saving treatments, and it's very sort of hard to disentangle something like the COVID vaccine. Um, which, you know, again, uh, government funded, government subsidized, um, you know, now the 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 companies like Moderna and Pfizer are jacking up prices on it. There's lots of evil stuff happening. Access has been restricted all around the world to these vaccines, you know, and yet many, many of us uh, went in, got a vaccine and, and um, you know, m- maybe it saved our lives. So I think it's 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 sort of a, a difficult to hold those two things in in our head at the same time. And it's also difficult because we're constantly thinking of them as the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, which gives all of the responsibility for uh, creating the vaccine to the company and doesn't uh, mention all of the other public funding that went into it. Uh, Julia, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, we just found out about the lever over the last few weeks, and uh, you're doing fantastic work over there. Thank you so much for being on our show, and uh, enjoy your upcoming weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.
And we never heard from the Lever again. <laughs> They've ghosted us ever since. They got too cool for us. <laughs> they did. I found out that uh, I didn't even know this at the time. That's uh, David Sirota project. Oh, yeah? The guy who used to work for Bernie Sanders when Bernie was in the House of Representatives, then as a senator, and then during his campaign for president, uh, he was in charge of his campaign. Uh, I can't remember the other outlet where he used to work, maybe Media Matters or something. Uh, And David Sirota has been a guest on our show in the past. That was until I found out that he was working for a politician. We decided never to ask him on the show again. Right. Broke your own rule. (laughs) I know. This is not the media. This is hell. And you are listening to the best of 2023, as determined by listeners to and the staff of This Is Hell. And if during the January talk with Julia Rock we just played, you either remembered how much you enjoyed that conversation the first time you heard it, or that was the first time you heard it, and it blew your mind, show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to analysis like that of Julia Rock's that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. And we're doing all of that without accepting any grants or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so non-profit, we can't afford to be not-for-profit. So show your appreciation for all of that and help us keep This Is Hell online and on air and assist us in our efforts to make every show we've ever done over the 27 years we've been on air uh, available for free at our website. You can do all that by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support when you can see uh, where you can see all the ways you can support and help out your friends at this is hell and uh, we really do need your help and a few weeks ago I was telling you about how there was a company that was trying to get us to have as an advertiser their miracle elixir which no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have any kind of commercials, uh, any kind of commercials or advertising on our show ever. However, they did send me like twenty-four vials of that weird mushroom oh, yeah? elixir. They sent them finally. Yes. All right. And uh, ever since then, we are now getting commercial requests on the show like crazy. So I think they huh. sold our contact information because we're getting like at least one every day for another oh, like no. fly-by-night snake oil product. Hey, this is how we make that uh, Joe Rogan and Alex Jones money. Exactly. <laughs> start, start selling supplements. <laughs> selling crap that nobody wants or needs. Um, so uh, you said that you would try it. Yeah. All right, so let's, I'll, let's I'll be doing it. I'll be bringing those vials over during office hours on yeah. Wednesday night. If anybody wants to try it, we'll be handing out something that I have no idea what the effect of <laughs> is on you, or if it's FDA approved in any way, or the level of cyanide that may be in it. <laughs> so you can so drop hold harmless. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding. I guess on Facebook and our Welcome to the Hell Hole. Uh, Facebook group pages. Yeah. There are dozens They've of responses, busy. so we, we're going to have to twenty-eight total. We're going to have to keep reminding people throughout <laughs> this what the question from hell is. So, what yeah. is the question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is: What special kind of hell should Kissinger suffer for all eternity? <laughs> Again, this is Hammer and Hank, mm-hmm. Henry Kissinger. Hammer and Hank. <laughs> 
Uh, let's see, Jeff Dorchin starts us off on uh, his usual uh, diction. Um, one where he and Nixon are attached by the urethrae, <laughs> being boofed by devils pumping oh Good Lord. satanic magma-like semen in oh, their bones. Come on. Yeah. Oh, come on. Which circulates through <laughs> their ducts and lymph systems, <laughs> only to explode out their eyes volcanically forever, illuminating the underworld and its horrors. And there's a whole conversation after that I will not read. <laughs> Um, I think all those are radio-friendly words, though. I think they are, actually, yes. Semen is just like a sailor. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) An able semen. That's right. Uh, Carrie D. replies, He should suffer the consequences of his own policies, of course. Okay. All right. I know you're going to carpet bomb him right now (laughs) without telling anybody. By the way, I'm very proud of the image that I uh, found for the question from hell. It's a picture of the Oval Office and the three people who are uh, at the president's desk. There's Richard Nixon sitting there. Across the uh, desk from him is Henry Kissinger. And joining them in conversation, all of them with huge smiles on their face, is John Wayne. Oh, (laughs) is that John Wayne? Yes. And so you know all three of them are burning in hell right now. Yeah, the Duke. Yeah. Uh, what else do you got? <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Criage. Yes. A replies. See and listen to all the victims of his cynical policies without any chance to speak or look away. No, oh, that's harsh. That is harsh. That is some really harsh stuff, Criage. I hope you're going through some good things right now. <laughs> Allison H replies. Maybe he should be in a beautiful countryside field, eternally having 70s-style press microphones feed into his arse and travel backwards through his digestive system until they eventually make in up his esophagus, and he subsequently is always on his hands and knees having to puke up and bury those mics in holes. Wow. When they come out his mouth, then they are... Unexploded bombs and everyone he's ever loved is there trying to walk up to him and they're stepping on bombs. He's buried and he just has to watch forever, getting reamed, having his guts ripped up to bloody shreds, puking, watching his loved ones die in front of him for something he knows all his fault but has no power to stop, ever. Rebecca, a theme here. Rebecca, I want to apologize for our listeners and <laughs> yeah. everything that has happened on this show, beginning with the camel meatballs <laughs> and pig's yeah. blood and leading to this. I thought yesterday's human centipede answer was going to be the worst of all of them, yeah. but apparently that is not the case. <laughs> all right, keep going. All right. Uh, uh, Riley C. replies, uh, Watergate tapeworms. <laughs> <laughs> Tickles. That's a, that's a good one. Well, I'm sensing a digestive theme. Also a teacher, by the way, in the oh. Milwaukee public school system. <laughs> right He's on. got that going for him. Shape those young minds. Yes. Uh, Martin F. replies, he gets treated like Sisyphus or Prometheus every day for all eternity. <laughs> he relives that episode of The Simpsons where he drops his glasses in the toilet. <laughs> that one I like. <laughs> yeah. That's Constantly stuff. dropping his glasses in the toilet <laughs> is pretty hot. It's pretty great. Uh, Jack B. replies, he has to have sex with one of those animals with a barbed penis forever. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Oh, man. 
Um, <laughs> Again, thanks to Pete Velavanis yeah, for writing this week's Pete. question from hell. Really appreciate it, Pete. And that question from hell is what special kind of hell should Henry Kissinger suffer for all eternity? Um, Marguerite H. replies, meeting every loved one of the people he directed to be murdered over and over again. Well, very succinct. Yeah, succinct. From the person who runs the hothouse. Thank you very much. Right on. Uh, Dan K. replies, continuously murdered for all eternity while listening to real politic bromides on the necessity of his death. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty hot. That's good stuff. Uh, <laughs> the necessity of his, his death, death is so great. <laughs> Um, Jen D responds, trying to eternally navigate the U.S. healthcare system while working a variety of part-time jobs with no benefits. <laughs> I feel seen, Jen. Wow. Um, Raphael B posted a video I have yet to watch. No, I don't even want to. Well, I want to I watch a video. See a that's... Monty Python thumbnail there. Okay. Oh, it's oh yeah. It looks like it's from the the ripoff album. Okay. Um. June P replies Henry who? <laughs> uh, that's a special hell right there. Uh, yeah, he would hate that. Yes, he would. Jack B replies, which episode will this be airing on? P.S. My response is earlier in the post. Oh, yeah, Jack yeah, B. Yeah, it sure is. See how short my memory Look is at reading that. these? What's going on? All right. Because so <laughs> you're trying to erase everything that you just read. <laughs> trying to power wash my brain. Up. Yeah. So that was Welcome to that Hellhole? Was, that was the Hellhole. Okay, yeah. so let's go to the Facebook right. page. Do those, and then we'll uh, move on. All right. Um, Andrea J. replies, he gets a consequence for his actions. Neil C. replies, <laughs> Agent Orange Enemas. Oh. Ugh. Neil. Neil. But thank you for all the support. Mm-hmm. Um, Fabio replies, cashier duty at McDonald's in Vietnam. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I think Cambodia would have been better. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Well, it's about a good shot. I mean, you got to dip your toe in. Yeah, you do. Um, uh, Adam A. replies, truth is, I don't believe in the afterlife, no matter how hard I try, and I'd rather just see to it that he's forever remembered as a monster. Okay. Fair enough. Good enough. Um, Day P. replies, this is a long one, this is easy. <laughs> You know it's not easy <laughs> when the first three words are, this is easy. His hell should be being on the receiving end of all his terror, including policies and war crimes. He should suffer as each and every person who suffered as a direct result of his cruelty. One at a time. One moment, he's the mother grieving her dead toddler. The next, he's the toddler dying slowly from being buried alive in rubble due to bombs. Wow. Then he's a boy being forced into combat and seeing his friends die. Next, he's the old grandfather who loses all his grandchildren one by one to preventable diseases. Then he's the nursing mother starving to death while watching her baby suffer alongside her. Every victim from Chile to Cambodia, etc., etc. He should suffer as completely as they all did. His hell should be that what he inflicted upon others all the terror, pain, grief, and despair, etc. If if there is a God, that's hopefully what he is experiencing right now. Oblivion is way too good for him. So kind of the golden rule, uh, whatever <laughs> the way that you want to be treated is the way that you should treat others. So yeah. he's just getting payback on the he's golden rule. Getting so, payback. Exactly. That, that was a really good that answer. That was a good actually. answer. That was a very well written yeah. answer. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. 
Any more? Uh, thanks for that, Day. Uh, yeah, we have two more. One from Lisa B. Three words. Eternal anal fissures. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Good Lord. We have some sick listeners. <laughs> you think? Uh, and then finally, Wesley W. replies, be forced to work on, or to be forced to work one of any gig jobs people work now, forever. Always getting further away from the ability to stop doing that um, uh, job. Oh, wait. Ellipsis. <laughs> so that's all of Facebook. So uh, that's uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can uh, leave your answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, our Facebook group, which is Welcome to Hell Hole. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. You can post it at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, if you are a subscriber or in our Discord community. Or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of the next or end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment in truth, moment of truth. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. But nothing's going to be as rotten as those answers to the question from hell. However, this is pretty horrible history. Eh, I'm going to say it's neck and neck here. On December 4th, 1976, 40 years, 47 years ago this week in rotten history, in the Bang, in Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, General Jean Badel Bokassa officially declared himself, quote, His Imperial Majesty Bokassa the First Emperor of Central Africa. So apparently he's got an ego issue. Concurrently, the former French colony known since its independence in 1960 as the Central African Republic was officially renamed the Central African Empire, which is the kind of name change I'm expecting here in the United States if former President Trump is re-elected. Bokassa, who in his youth had fought with the French against the Nazis in World War II, had also served in the government of David Dacko, who had become first president of the new nation with the support from the French government. Dacko had relaxed government regulation of diamond mining while accepting friendly relations with the People's Republic of China. But in 1968, using the threat of communism as an excuse, Bokassa overthrew Dacko, canceled the country's constitution, and dissolved its national assembly. So Bokassa both fought Nazis in World War II, engaged in communist fear-mongering while overthrowing democracy. This guy hated any form of government outside of the one where he ruled it like an emperor. He also took over the diamond game and went on to run a brutal and corrupt mil military dictatorship while showing increasing signs of megalomania. Yet he managed to maintain diplomatic relations with several countries, especially France, which sent the equivalent of 22 million US dollars in aid. And France supporting some freak who wants to be an emperor is not at all surprising. Bocasa spent that entire amount, the $22 million in aid from France, almost one-third of his impoverished nation's annual budget, to fund a lavish coronation of himself on December 4th, 1977, 46 years ago this week in Rotten History, and exactly one year after the proclamation of the so-called Empire. The ceremony, reportedly modeled after the coronation of Napoleon Bonaparte, 
I mean, this guy Bocasa was a straight-up freak. Featured an outrageously expensive crown, throne, and decor by, you guessed it, French artisans. And you can find video of this insane coronation online by searching on Bocasa, B-O-K-A-S-S-A, coronation. It is mind-boggling. By this time, Bocasa was rumored to practice cannibalism, not a rumor you want to have, and to feed his political opponents to lions and crocodiles. Most foreign leaders viewed him as insane, and though they were invited to his coronation, none of them showed up. Bocasa would hold power for two more years until 1979, when he was overthrown by French-led troops who restored David Dacko to the presidency of a restored Central African Republic, no longer an empire. Bocasa, later convicted of mass murder, torture, and corruption, received a death sentence. But in 1993, he was released from prison and retired into private life. Shortly before his death in 1996, he publicly declared himself the 13th Apostle of Jesus Christ. And in 2010, Bokasa was posthumously rehabilitated by the government of the Central African Republic, which called him a great leader of the nation. The rumor is that Bokasa intimated to another diner at his coronation that the delicious meat they had just eaten was, in fact, that of a human. And now that camel meatball pig's blood chili doesn't sound so bad now that's rotten history and this is hell will who is our next guest here on the best of 2023 our next interview to be featured during our best of 2023 series is our talk with stefania morizzi on her book secret power wikileaks and its enemies so it's Stefania Marizzi tomorrow. That is the most listened to show according to SoundCloud in 2023 here on This Is Hell. And we thought if we want to be democratic about this process, the uh, interviews that were listened to the most by you should be the ones that we play during the best of 2023. That's what we've been playing this week. The three interviews that we have played are the top three most listened to shows in 2023 according to SoundCloud. Tell us what your favorite interviews were, who were your favorite guests, and if we play any of the conversations you picked from 2023, we'll thank you personally on the show. All you have to do is send us your favorite or favorites to chuckatthisishell.com, DM them to us via X, post them in the uh, Discord community, email us, post it at our Facebook pages, all that kind of stuff on Patreon. And if you do uh, post a suggestion that we use for the best of 2023, again, we'll thank you personally on air. We also hope to see you all on Wednesday, December 20th, winter solstice eve for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regular scheduled office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. And yes, This Is Hell office hours are happening this week on Wednesday evening, as they do most every Wednesday evening, except when I'm out of town or homesick. So far, I have neither of those things on my schedule for this Wednesday. Bringing you, thank you, Rebecca, for joining us as well. Thank you to Will Ippen for producing. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.